Welcome to New Life Midtown. Would you please stand up? Let's get ready to sing some songs to King Jesus. Hey, how you saved our souls. That's good. Clap your hands, all you people. Let's sing unto God. That never runs dry Drink of the water Come and thirst no more
the cross, Jesus is waiting, and God so loved the world. Yes, hallelujah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Do you all know that verse? Yeah, someone said, yeah. <laughs> Not everybody knows that verse, and it's important for us to speak it out because the gospel is that Jesus Christ coming to save us from our sins. Can someone just say amen to that? That is such good news. All right, friends, you've come into the house of the Lord. This is the place where goodness and mercy has is following us, and we have been led into a place of peace. And I, I just, I'm thinking about that this morning right now. Psalm 23, verse 6 says, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord my God forever. Friends, you are here because of the goodness and mercy of God. These twin graces has brought us here together. And so with that in mind, can we profess the great profession of the goodness of God by reading Psalms 107. Let us enter into the scripture together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Now, can we practice a little bit of that here this morning? I just want you just to lift up your voice right now. Lift up your hands, and let's just thank God for his goodness. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. It follows us. It chases us down. Yes, oh God. Thank you for being a good and faithful Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are in a place where we can taste and see that you are truly good. Would you speak and minister to our hearts right now about your goodness? And Father, I pray that every heart that's here would be able to rely upon your character, your mercy, your righteousness, Lord God. Would you transform our hearts? Would you change us to be more molded in, into the image of Jesus Christ so we may walk pleasing in your sight? So, God, we worship you. We come before you with thanksgiving and honor. And again, we thank you for your goodness in our life. In your mighty name, we pray and say amen. Amen, family. Come on, let's keep singing about the goodness of our God here this morning.
just feel like this morning, I want to encourage you guys. There's, there's nothing that we've done to earn his goodness. And there's nothing we can do to earn that goodness that keeps running after us over and over and over. There's a wise man who told me, the only thing missing from the prodigal son story is something at the end that says, and then it happened all over again, and again, and again, and again. And I know that's my story. Let's sing, God, you're so good. God, you're so Yeah. 
a new creation coming is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst it is isn't good that we remind ourselves of it Does the Father truly love us? Yes, He does. Does the Spirit move among us? And does Jesus, our Messiah, go forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Yeah. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Oh. 
Friends, all across this room, can I invite you to lift up your hands to the King of Kings. And Seth, I'm going to just have you go into a, a holy or a worthy medley here at a moment after I read Revelation 5. But we lift up our hands to you, Jesus. We behold you. We set our gaze upon you today, Jesus. Lord, would you cleanse our heart of any other idol or any other affection that is vying for the devotion of our heart right now? Let's do some preparatory work right now, God. I pray that you would pry loose the fingers of my heart and my mind that are clutching and grasping towards anything, God, in this life that is not of you. Lord, I pray that you would cleanse my heart, God, of any and every other affection, God. Anything I'm giving my devotion to, anything that is superseding the glory and the majesty of Jesus, oh God, I pray that you would break its power off of my life. Break its power, God, off of our emotions, off of our imaginations, off of our fantasy, God, off of our will. Lord, come satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Lord, I know that there are in this room, there are singles that are in this room, God, that are longing, aching, God, aching for companionship and friendship and affection and intimacy. And Lord, in this season of their lives, God, I pray you would come and you would fulfill the deepest longing right now of every single man and every single woman in this room. Lord, I pray for those that are married. Lord, those that are looking to a spouse to fulfill the deepest longing of their hearts and they're still coming up frustrated and disappointed God, I'm asking that you would come and that you would satisfy the deepest longing of the married man and the married woman. Lord, those of us that assume that positions and power and wealth will satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, God, would you come today and satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts? God, we lay our lives down as a living sacrifice to you holy and acceptable and pleasing unto you. Beloved, I want to read Revelation 5 to you. I want to invite you right now to engage your imagination. Allow your heart to be awakened again in wonder and worship. In verse 5, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven, no one in earth, no one under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So I wept and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, son, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Come on, you can clap your hands to the lion of the tribe of Judah up in this house. Verse 6 says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, 
standing at the center of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and you are worthy to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe and every language and every people group and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. And we join heaven right now and we say, Amen. We say, Amen. We say, Amen. Only you, God, are worthy to be worshiped. Only you are worthy to be worshiped. Only you are worthy to be adored. Let's just lean in for a few moments.
Philip, would you mind just playing over us for a moment? Friends, just sit under this. Receive. church and I'll just wait on the Lord just wait on the Lord I believe the Lord is ministering to some in this room he's speaking to some Lord we wait on you right now Samuel, we find that when King Saul was vexed and tormented by demonic spirits, they would look for a man to play. They found a young boy by the name of David who was hiding out in fields just worshiping God. He learned how to be a worship leader in the secret place of solitude and intimacy. And then they pulled him into the king's court. And when he began to minister, the peace of the Lord would touch that king that was vexed by demonic spirits. You may not be vexed by demonic spirits today, but I had this sense that there are some of you in this room that just need the peace of the Lord to settle in upon you. And so I want to pray today that any and everything that is standing against you, that is opposing you, that any and everything that is not from God, that is resisting you, any chain or yoke of bondage or addiction or affliction or pain or oppression that is aggravating your life, we command it to be gone in the authority of Jesus' name. And we release the peace of the living God upon you, friend. Peace on your soul, peace on your emotions, peace on your mind, peace over your imagination, peace over your sleep at night, peace over your children, peace over your physical body. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Peace, peace, peace in your marriage, your communication. In the name of Jesus, in the name of the Lord Jesus, may the peace of God move in. Establish itself on the throne of your heart. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Why don't you give somebody a high five or a big hug before you sit down. Find out who's worshiping next to you.
All right, guys, you're going to have another opportunity to do this. So come on back. Come on back together. Let us give. Let us send our kids out, and then you guys can talk and hang out for a few more minutes. I'm just going to jump right to our giving prayer today. I want to remind you just by way of just healthy, gentle, almost like holy reminder today that what we're doing when we give to God, it's, it's not something that begins with us. It's not something that ends with us. It is something that God invites us into. And he invites us into it because it's part of his divine economy. It's a part of his divine way of releasing blessing to our lives. It's part of him getting us to participate with him so that he can release fullness of blessing into our lives. Because when we give or what we give to God becomes holy. That what you give to God becomes holy. And then everything else in your life is being sanctified by that thing that you give to him that is becoming holy. And friends, that's an incredible promise. I encourage you to just kind of lean in and think about that and let that just challenge you and encourage you in your giving today. Let's pray the giving prayer together. Father, you are the abundant giver of all good things. Train us now to delight in holy dependence. Lead us to honor you with all of our resources. Free us from the deceitfulness of greed and earthly riches. Teach us to give generously with open hands and joy-filled hearts that we might receive abundantly and flourish for the sake of others and your purposes in the earth. If you can agree with that, say amen today. Amen. I believe it. May the Lord bless you guys. Moms and dads, pull your kids in close. We're going to bless our kids and send them upstairs to go learn and be taught the scriptures by the power of the Spirit. We're going to do this by praying the Lord's Prayer together. And let's pray this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Sons and daughters, we love you guys. Be blessed. Go learn. Everybody else, let's go ahead. Let's let's continue what we started. You can stand up. You can love on somebody. You can get to know somebody. You can be a blessing to somebody. And then we're going to bring the word here in a moment.
Good morning, Midtown. It's great to see you in person and not from a screen today. For those of you who haven't been here, typically it's video announcements, but today I just couldn't take it. I wanted to talk to you face to face and tell you how much I love you all. And I'm not just blowing smoke. Like last night, I was sitting just thinking about all the people who have just been present. Not even people in this church that I'm like close with and I know their life story. Just people who have been present, who have been coming week after week for years. And I've just like, I just had to cry before the Lord. Just so thankful. Yep, I'm being mushy and gushy right now. But let me gush over you because you're amazing, okay? Um, But really, I just want you all to know that your presence matters. Your presence here today matters, and it might not matter to the person that you think. Like, there's people that I just know, like, I think, like, I know that they're going through a hard time, and I don't even know them personally, but their presence here impacts me and forms me into the image of the Lord and, like, encourages me that when I'm going through something hard, I can show up and be in this family. So thank you for being here today. Your presence matters. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lauren Oscom. I'm on staff here at New Life Midtown. And I just want to tell you about a few events that we have coming up. And number one, next week on Sunday the 12th, we have an event called New Life Next. And we have this event every few months here. And it's really for those of, it's for those of you who maybe this is your first time or you've been coming for a few weeks or even a few months and you want to get more deeply integrated into this family. This is an event where we get to tell you about a bit more about who we are, share our culture with you, answer your questions about, about what the new life model looks like, and where we just get to see your face, and you get to see ours, and we get to know each other. So I encourage you to come to this event. It's on November 12th. We do ask that you register, and we have ushers. They have little... Uh, invite cards with the way to sign up. So if you are interested, just slip your hand up. They'll put that card in your hand. And if you need help uh, registering, just come and visit myself and another at the Welcome Center, which is this big white desk out in the foyer, and we can help you get signed up for that. We hope to see you there. And lastly, on November the 19th, Friendsgiving. So where are all my 20s, 30s at? Amen, guys. Friendsgiving is, as critics are saying, the yummiest event of the year. So you got to be there. Truly, though, this is an event that we have every year with the 20s, 30s, and it's always a blast and a blessing. And this year, we've kind of had a little bit with our transition of buildings and all this stuff, a little hiatus from 20s, 30s ministry, but we're back. We're back, and we're better than ever. So if you are in 20s, 30s, please come to this event. It's on the 19th. You can register in the cafe. There will be people there to help you get registered, or you can just jump online. But don't procrastinate. Help us out. Register for it. Amen? Amen. All right. Good morning. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I like that. My man came, he knows why he came to church today. <clears throat> this week, uh, I was at a restaurant, a local restaurant that I visit quite frequently, a very small, not, not a chain. I had somebody come up to me after first service and say, was that restaurant you were talking about, Village Inn? <laughs> I said, once you hear what I'm about to say, you will know that Village Inn would never let this happen. Maybe Village Inn would, but most others wouldn't. But uh, I was at a restaurant actually last Sunday afternoon with Dr. Chris and Julie Green after second service, 
and we went to this restaurant, and it's one where you sit down and you order and you do all the normal things at a sit-down restaurant, but then to pay, you walk up to the cash register. And then at the end of our meal, I, I had had my back to where the cash area was, where the cash register was, and then I walked up and I realized that just immediately below the register, there is literally a shrine, a Buddhist shrine. And um, with n- more than just the Buddha, but also with uh, a number of fruits, some peeled, some not. I- I'm not sure behind the logic there. I don't know why some of the fruit was peeled. A few crumpled up dollar bills. And immediately I was repelled, it, like almost like a snake was at my foot. Like, oh my goodness. It's not every day that you and I come into contact with literal physical idols, is it? But uh, I remembered right after that, I was shaken, and I was like, oh, this is, you know, I, I know what this is. It's interesting, but I don't have to be afraid of it. And I remembered a time when I was either in high school or college that I went to a restaurant with a group of friends, and a similar experience happened, but it was at the door, and we walked in, and, you know, Christian college, Christian friends, and we walk in, and immediately they were like, we're not eating here. We're leaving. So we left, and what struck me when I had that memory was how common it is for us to repel idols that we're not familiar with. But the irony is that there are so many other idols that we willingly embrace in our own lives. Oh, guys, I promise I didn't want to bring a message about idolatry to you today. But we're going to talk about idolatry. We have three weeks left in this series in the book of First Kings called Kings and Kingdoms. And in almost every one of the messages and one of the passages that we've read nearly every week, we've read a verse about idolatry. And it was something that in that day and age and all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, idolatry began there. And for the people of God, idolatry is something that was really common to talk about and to hear about and to hear commandments about until very recently. And once again, the irony is not that there aren't idols, but that because they're not physical, we don't talk about them, and we don't know how to identify them. And I think that's where their power lies, in that they go unseen and unnamed, and therefore the grip on our hearts that they have can be so tight, and we can never identify what is actually constricting this life from me. And I want to pray today that the power of the Spirit uh, would reveal those things and begin to loosen their grip. So before we jump into the text in just a moment, we will. We'll jump into the text and talk about a man named Jeroboam, but before we do, bow your heads. Holy Spirit, I ask today that you would open our minds and bring us focus for what it is that you are speaking to us as a collective body, but also as individuals. Lord, I pray against any spirit of condemnation, but I pray that our hearts would be sensitive, that they would tell on us this morning, that they would bring us into awareness of what is going on beneath the surface in our own lives, and that the Holy Spirit, the one who loves to draw us into the life of God, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would point on these things that constrict the life of God from us, and that you would pry the fingers of these idols off of our hearts so that we might be free, as the Apostle Paul says. Today we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together we say, Amen. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles with me, which I am in the wrong book, I'm in the wrong testament, y'all. Give me a second. There we go. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Kings 11. It'll be up on the screens. 
And we're going to talk today about a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, if you read through the entire book of Kings, 1 Kings in particular, you will come to realize that this man's life ended quite poorly. And that in many ways, he becomes the standard for evil kings. But he didn't begin that way. He began, as we're going to read here in just a moment, as a man of standing. And I want to propose to you today that how a man goes from a man of standing to the epitome of an evil king happens by way of idolatry and the subtlety of idolatry and the way that it creeps into our lives. So let's look together. I will read with you on the screens. Now Jeroboam was a man of standing. See, I told you it's in the scripture. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of his new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces in dramatic fashion like prophets do. And then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, we will, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemoth. Chemosh, excuse me, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my uh, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. Note that phrase, you will rule over all that your heart desires and you will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, then I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. Last verse. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It told you in that first verse that Jeroboam was a man of standing. And I don't doubt that that verse is true, that there was much in his life that was right and full of character and honoring. And it was actually because of him being a man of standing and hard work ethic and probably having some kind of wisdom and strategic thinking that Solomon identified, that Solomon promoted him to a position over all the labor force, which ironically would be the exact thing that became the point of contention between Jeroboam and King Solomon. And then eventually, after Solomon dies, it's what elevated and placed Jeroboam in the position to receive ten of the tribes of Israel to begin with. 
But I want to propose to you today that this passage reveals some things subtly where there is, though he is a man of standing, also something going on beneath the surface in his heart. And if we, you and I, can learn to pay attention to the things that are going on beneath the surface in our hearts, then maybe you and I also can learn to avoid the catastrophes that Jeroboam could not have, or at least that he did not have. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is that the prophet comes in in this dramatic fashion. He brings this word out in the wilderness where no one else is, Ahijah and Jeroboam. Ahijah tracks him down and says, here's my new coat. I'm going to rip it into 12 pieces, and I want you to take 10. And this is the sign that God is going to give you 10 of the 12 That was interesting. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel because of Solomon and the people's unfaithfulness. Now in this moment, Jeroboam does nothing but takes the ten pieces of the cloak. But I want to propose to you that this was actually an opportunity to see what was in Jeroboam's heart. What if Jeroboam, like Abraham and like Moses, had resisted? And said, God, that's not what's really in your heart to do. That's not what you should do, God. This is not what's going to be best for the people. If you separate the people, it's going to prolong the process of them coming back to you. You think that by separating them, by dividing them amongst Judah and the tribes of Israel, that this is going to help anything? Now we know, you and I now, because we have two testaments in our Bible, we know Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 15 to John 17 And what do we know that ultimately what Jesus wants is for his people to be one body, where he is the head and we, all of his people throughout time and space, the church historic, the church universal is one body. You and I know what is in God's heart is anything but division. But there was something in Jeroboam where he didn't even have the confidence or the awareness that he could resist, or the desire to resist. Now, I lean to think that it's actually the latter, because a man growing up in this culture would have known the stories. He would have known the story of Abraham pleading for Sodom when God says, I'm going to wipe Sodom from the face of the earth. And Abraham starts high and like a master negotiator, continues to whittle that number down until finally... He and God, in this wrestling match, he comes and says this to the Lord in Genesis 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Hear the boldness, the courage. And Abraham can have courage and be bold. You know why? Because he's in tune with God's heart. He knows that what God really wants to do is not to destroy those people. But he wants to see what's in Abraham, this one that he is calling to lead his people. This happens again with Moses. It happens in Exodus chapter 32. That Exodus is, or um, Moses is up on the mountaintop. He's just received the Ten Commandments. And he's about to come down and God tells him that the people are doing something evil. And that he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses says, God, you don't really want to do that. And he pleads with God. And just in case you don't believe me, you can go read it. But also, 
Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 8 or chapter 9. Paul says, I would rather be accursed and cut off from God if it meant that my people would come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now we have these three men, these three pictures of men who are willing to wrestle with God for the sake of the people. And I believe that this was a test. This was a moment for Jeroboam. And I think what we're seeing is that there's something else in his heart. It doesn't mean he's completely evil through and through, but there was a secret in that passage. Did you catch it? It said in verse 37, And you will rule over all that your heart desires. The writer of this passage is showing us that there's already something inside of Jeroboam that is longing to rule. And I think it's because Jeroboam actually thinks, I know how to do this better than Solomon. Let me have a chance and I'll show you. Because part of what leads to this moment, or what this moment is about to lead to in the beginning of chapter 12, is a conflict over labor and the injustice that Solomon is putting on the backs of the people. And Jeroboam is over the labor force and he sees it firsthand. And not only does he see it, but he is tasked with enforcing it. There's something inside of him that is resisting this evil, which is good. It is good to resist evil. But not if the resistance of evil actually seeps down into your heart and becomes a part of your identity. Then what we see happening is this man who wants to assume a position of leadership so that he can show everyone what it's like to be a good king. I'll show you how it's done. Nonetheless, God gives Jeroboam a promise anyways. Do what I command and obey me, and I will be with you and build you a dynasty. Now let's skip along to the second half of 1 Kings chapter 12. So what the prophet says comes to pass, and the ten tribes are separated from the tribe of Judah, which the tribe of Judah is where Jerusalem is. Don't ask me why 10 plus 1 equals 12. I'm not sure. Actually, that was a joke. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. And if you do the math from the passage, he says, I'm going to give David one, and I'm going to give you ten. So there's a missing tribe. But most scholars believe that it was the tribe of the Levites, which didn't count for some reason. Okay, so just in case you're confused there and you're going to get hung up on that the rest of the sermon, that's what's happening. There was the missing tribe. Okay, there was my TED Talk. Thank you for coming. All right, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 32, we're picking up, these are the first acts of Jeroboam as he is the king of the people of Israel, not the people of Judah. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord. Note that phrase, their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, another key phrase, if you remember Pastor Jade's message from two Sundays ago about the quote-unquote wisdom of Rehoboam, after seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
One he set up in Bethel, the other he set up in Dan, and this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people. Even though they were not Levites, he he instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made. This is the word of the Lord again. Thanks be to God. That was a, a wake check, all right? Two things we see right in the beginning verses. The first is, and so he thought to himself. And the next verse, and he sought advice. What does he not do? Pray. What does he not do? Pray. One of the dangers when you're entrusted with responsibility is to attempt to sustain what God establishes with your own talent, resourcefulness, and wit. One of the great temptations for all of you who are succeeding in life, for all of you who have the family you've always dreamed of, your business is thriving, things are going well in your life, one of the greatest temptations is to say, thank you, God, for all of these blessings. I'll take it from here. Even if you say, thank you, God, so much for the genius that you have given me, for all of these decisions that I am about to make flawlessly because you've put wise people around me, God, you've given me everything I need. Thank you so much for that, God, that then you have no need of God anymore. And we see this over and over and over again. We see a version of this in the life of King Saul. We see a version of it in the life of King David. We see almost the exact same thing in the life of King Solomon. At some point along the way, do you think these kings are going to recognize what's happening? That what they're doing is they're worshiping and they are praying and they're relying on God just until they get secure in their position. And they have the power that they've longed for. And then they recognize that they've got a lot of it. They've got a lot of authority, a lot of money, a lot of resources at their hand. And either they turn against God or they forget because they're so encumbered with the tasks of leading. Let us not be a people who ever forget that none of us have got to the place that we have got to in this life apart from the hand of God who still is sustaining us. There is no sustaining what God has done in your life apart from God, friends. And sometimes it takes a little bit of a wake-up call for us to recognize it. So I don't know where you're at this morning. Maybe you're like, man, I wish one thing would go well in my life. Maybe you're not there. You are fully dependent, prostrate before the Lord. Fantastic. That's a good place to be. And then there is this phrase, this thing became a sin. Did you hear that? It's kind of odd. It sounds to me, as soon as I read those things, like they are quite sinful, actually. Like making golden calves and calling them the God who delivered them from Egypt sounds like a sin. Moving worship from the place of the temple, appointing priests who are not Levites, 
moving one of the primary festivals, location, and time, all of those things seem to be quite sinful. And yet it doesn't seem that Jeroboam recognizes what he's doing in the moment. And I want to propose to you today that I think the way that idolatry works in our lives is that we actually can't see them because of the manipulative nature of sin working and playing on the weaknesses of our own hearts. And so I want to take just a moment and unpack some of the decisions that he makes and show you how there are layers that are happening. And I want us to ask, not just as a way of analyzing the passage, but that the Holy Spirit might analyze us. That we might come to see how and why we are making decisions the way that we are if there are roots of sinfulness that are going far beneath the surface that we can't see any longer. So the first layer, strategic disobedience. Once again, he makes two golden calves. He moved the location of worship from Jerusalem. He authorized priests from a group of people whom God had not called. And then he altered the month of a key festival. All of these things are disobedience. But to him, they're strategic disobedience. There's a layer beneath that that I think shines the light on this. And that layer is pragmatic justification. In his mind, he's probably arguing something like this. I'm keeping the general form of worship the same, but God, you know that Jerusalem is a really far place to go for those who are way up in Dan or way down in Beersheba. So why don't we just split the difference and make it a little easier on your people? Anytime we're making justifications based on ease, simplicity, efficiency, and convenience, beware. It doesn't mean every decision that we make based off convenience is bad. Okay, go to the closest gas station to your house. I don't think that's where sin is crouching at your door. But beware when you're making decisions about worship, about your family, about your future, about your money, about your time, the things that really matter most in life. When we begin to make compromises based off pragmatism, which you could think of pragmatism is just whatever works best. Or another phrase from psychology and history is the end justifies the means. When we start making decisions based off of pragmatism, you can be sure sin is close by. A couple of examples. One example uh, <clears throat> for us here as good Christian godly people in the house of God. We now have technology that allows us to automate our giving. I automate my giving, so if you're beginning to feel convicted, you'll be convicted with me. It's fine. We're all in a good place together. But what is possible, automated giving is actually a huge blessing. It's a huge blessing to the church. But if you allow your giving to be separated from your heart by disengaging in the moment of giving, when we're praying the prayer and we're posturing our heart before the Lord, and you're going, yeah, I've already done this, or I don't even think about it anymore because it's been automated for so long, then what happens when financial difficulty comes upon your home? One of the first things that's easy to cut is giving. Why? Because your heart was separated from it long ago. There's no conviction anymore. 
Watching church online is another one of these things. In and of itself, it's a neutral tool that is really a wonderful thing, particularly for some of our sick and infirmed and some of our elderly. Or for you, when you're out of, town, out of town or have a sick kid or you're on vacation, it's an incredible tool to be able to watch online. But then there are these little moments. I'm tired. I shouldn't be tired because we all just got an extra hour of sleep, y'all. But I'm tired today and... Honestly, I'll just do it once, which turns into once a month, which turns into even more regularly than that. And before you know it, your heart is no longer tethered to the people of God because you've become a self-feeder watching church online. Is the internet a terrible thing? Of course not. But we could parse this out over all kinds of good spiritual things that once we begin making those decisions because of pragmatic reasons, they actually become problematic in our own lives. But I think that there's another layer there. Beneath that, beneath pragmatic justification, Jeroboam is grasping for self-preservation. He's wanting to preserve what God has just entrusted to him, which can feel like a really noble thing. Have you ever noticed that? God's given me this huge sum of money. I can't give it away, you know, an inheritance. A family member passes and you receive. Maybe that's just me dreaming. That hasn't actually happened for any of you. I don't know. But the Lord has entrusted me with this huge sum of money and I have to be very careful with whom I share it or where I give it, which so quickly just turns into greed and self-preservation. And something like that is probably not going to happen for most of us. But scale it down to size in your own life. The things that God entrusts to you that you're meant to hold like this, it's so easy. When the prophet hands you ten pieces of that cloak, you just latch onto it. And before you know it, you're willing to do anything to hold on to those ten pieces. When everything in this life God gives us, he intends for us to hold like this. Your spouse, your children, your money, your businesses, your relationships, your talents, your gifts, your health. Everything God has given to you and to me, he intends to hold like this. And how do we know it? Because that's what he did with his own life. And the human propensity is to grab on, to preserve. And it's so noble sometimes. It feels noble. It feels dignifying to hold on to these things. But I believe that's where evil can really grab our hearts. There was that phrase in chapter 12, verse 27, that I think tells us a clue to how this happened. Where Jeroboam says, They will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam. No, wait, he, he's their king. Take out the word Lord and put king. He's their king. God prophesied it through a prophet long before it ever happened. Now he's actually king. And he's afraid of these people turning to what he perceives as their allegiance is still with that other guy. There's something deep inside of him that is insecure. That he doesn't trust what God has given to him has actually been entrusted to him. That he has to prove. And guys, anytime, I think Pastor Jade said this two or three weeks ago, anytime we are being tempted to prove, 
what is happening is our hands are closing. Our hands are closing around whatever it is. And we're saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you I'm better than Solomon and his son Rehoboam. He's attempting to prove his kingship because he doesn't believe. Beneath the surface of self-preservation is a mistrust of God. You notice in that first passage we read, God told him exactly what to do for the kingdom to prevail, for him to have a dynasty. He tells him, don't do what Solomon did, worshiping other idols. Don't do that. Obey me, follow my commands, and I will make your dynasty long. I will give you a long lineage. And the irony is that he's quenching so hard to prove he's not that guy, he actually does the exact same thing that man did. What did Solomon do? Solomon received a wonderful gift from God, his wisdom. And it was about 10 minutes later that Solomon said, God, thank you so much for this. Now I'm going to go and make strategic decisions with this wisdom. And those strategic decisions were marrying women who were not Israelites. Breaking rule number one. Number two, in that passage we read in chapter 11, they bring all of their gods with them. And Solomon somehow is so blinded by his own brilliance that he leads the people to worshiping these gods. And one generation later, we have a man rebelling against another man, but he's clinching, he's eaten up with insecurity, and he does the exact same thing. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't trust God. The fourth layer. And I think at the root of all of it, there's one more layer. At the core, the taproot, is fear. And he tells us in verse 27 that why he's making all of these decisions is because he is afraid that the people will turn against him and take his life. Psychologists, social psychologists have told us that for most people, if not everyone, that the root fear of all other fears in our lives is the fear of death, which is ultimately the greatest loss any of us could ever have, is our own life. And friends, I want to tell you, that is very real even for us, the people of God. There are many people of God who are very afraid of their own death. And if we don't allow God to open up our fingers and hold even that most raw, the, that root of fear in our own lives, if we don't hold it with open hands before God, it will turn us in on ourselves, and before you know it, we will be making decisions just like Jeroboam. John Calvin, and you know if I'm quoting John Calvin, it must be a good quote. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. The human heart is an idol factory. Most of us, hopefully all of us, if I were to visit your house, I would not ring the doorbell and see a Buddhist shrine. But let not our being repelled by those kinds of idols think that we are somehow not susceptible to idolatry at all. You might think of idols as a weird word, that doesn't have any context in 2023, but think about the word attachments. 
which if you read in psychology or sociology at all, you will realize that that word comes up a lot. And one of the spiritual thinkers from the early 20th century, a Catholic spiritual thinker, Anthony DeMello, defines attachments like this. The emotional state of clinging caused by the belief that without a certain thing or a certain person, you cannot be happy. An attachment is whatever you think you need to be okay. And if we're honest, most of us have dozens of attachments in our lives. In a moment like this, where we're a little bit more holy than we are on Tuesday afternoon, having sat through exhortation, a little bit of preaching, our hearts have been laid bare before the Lord, we may not feel like we have attachments. But I want to ask you a couple of questions today. Deep down in your heart, when you're honest, what do you believe will fix your problems? On Tuesday afternoon, when the stress of family and the work week and everything is caving in on you, and your reaction, not your response, but your reaction is to cling and to clinch, what is it that you assume, if it were fixed, would make your life so much better? That is one of the ways that we can learn to identify these taproots of things that we can call attachments. And idols are nothing but full-born attachments. When an attachment is fully grown in our lives, it looks like an idol. I want to turn our attention to Zechariah 10.2. It'll be up on the screen. Read this verse. The idols speak deceitfully. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. Why are idols and attachments so dangerous? Because they lie to us. They give us a false sense of security that can only be found when we entrust the fullness of our lives to God, with open hands. Let's look at Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, talking about people who are not the people of God, are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Philip, you can come. Why are idols so dangerous? Because where idols are present in our lives, we, they have a gravitational pull on us, and we bend in and bend toward these kinds of things. So you may be going, man, this is really compelling, but I can't identify any idols. So let me read to you a couple of idols that we would think of as being idols in the secular world, idols out there. Money, perhaps the easiest one. Relational connectedness. Beauty, your appearance. Intelligence. Work ethic. Education. Your position. An idol could be thought of as if everything else were stripped of me, at least I would have this. Whatever you would fill in the blank there with that this, 
that's an idol. And because we're all good church-going people here on Sunday morning, I feel compelled to identify a few Christian idols, things that genuinely are given to us by God, things that are good for us in their proper place. The first one, spiritual practices. Things like giving, serving, going to church. These things are good for you in their proper place. Insofar as you don't confuse those things with the one who gave them to you. Because here's what can inadvertently happen. You begin to think something like this. As long as I'm doing these things, as long as I'm praying, as long as I'm giving, God will make sure my life goes well. As long as I'm doing these things, I will go through struggles. Yes, of course, everyone goes through struggles. But the worst things will never happen to me. My marriage may be on the rocks, but divorce is not an option. My kids will go through a tough time, but they'll never walk away. I may go through financial hardship, but God would never let bankruptcy happen to me. Friends, that's a magical, idolatrous way of thinking. You are putting your trust in the practices that God has given us that are meant to point us to Him, the only source. Another one, Scripture. A number of years ago, I was reading uh, a a well-known spiritual author who said this, that they had discovered one of the secrets in Scripture, and it was the secret of pleading the blood. And so they started every day to plead the blood. By the way, I'm not railing on pleading the blood. If that's something you do over your family, wonderful. But the way they were talking about this, they said, since the day I began doing that, nothing bad has happened to me. Friends, that's an idol That is replacing this magical confession of a phrase with the living God himself. Another one, the final one I will mention, you guys are like, please let up, brother. I'm about to. This is the last one. For some of us, it's the pursuit of our own healing, our own wholeness. And I'm not saying that you should not keep praying and believing for your own healing, physical, external, or internal, emotional. I do believe God wants us to be healed. But there is a way that you can hold on to this idea of pursuing your own healing where you actually come to believe, I will never be happy until this happens. I'll never be able to be the person God has called me to be until this happens. I'll never be able to do anything meaningful for God until this happens. And if that's where you're at, friends, I'm not here to say anything condemning, but I am here to point out it has become an idol. Just about anything in our lives, even the good things God has given to us, can easily become an idol if we don't remember who is the single sole source of our lives. Stand with me as as we prepare to come to the table. Communion attendants, you can come forward. There are times in our lives, I didn't say this in first service, but it hit me during worship. Have any of you ever felt like God was against you? You can be honest, I have. I'm raising my own hand. That it felt like everything you were asking for, everything you were wanting and desiring was not happening, or one of the proverbial phrases is praying to a brass ceiling or a brass heaven, like your your prayers just aren't getting anywhere. I don't know why God allows difficult things to happen and why we go through dark seasons and dry seasons, but one thing I do know happens 
when it feels like God is against us. And if you can remember this, when you feel that, I think it will help. That God is only against you insofar as he is separating you from your attachments and your idols. And sometimes that feels like stripping something away from you that's been with you for years. And it can feel like God is against you, but what he's really doing is pulling away the things that are not you so that you can become whole. Paul says in Galatians 5 that it is for freedom that God has sent Jesus. The encouraging word for you today is that God wants you to be free. And attachments and idols encumber us from real freedom. Only in real freedom do we experience the life of God where we can say, no matter what comes against me, if God is for me, it doesn't matter. If I have God, everything else can be taken. And look, I'm not telling you that's an easy prayer to pray. I'm certainly not saying it's something easy to live, but what I am saying is that is the vision of wholeness that God is calling each and every one of us to. As we come forward to the table here in just a moment, I would encourage you to lay your heart bare before the Lord and just say, God, what am I clenching that you're wanting to open in my life? And I believe that the Spirit in his gentle way will reveal that to you today. So if you are um, on the left side of your aisle, can you lead coming to communion to receive the elements out the left-hand side? Receive the elements, go back to your seats, and we will partake together in just a moment. Come to the table of the Lord. You're the center Everything revolves around you Jesus, you Jesus, be the center of my life Jesus, be the center 
I skipped over this earlier in my notes, but I want to say this as we prepare to partake, that we create idols to soothe our fears that God is not enough, that he won't do what he says he'll do, and that he's not as good as he says he is. I believe that the deepest fears in our lives are a result of one of those three lies, that either God is not going to do what he says he's going to do, he's not who he says he is, he's not as good as he says he is. And friends, I am here to testify to you that God is better than you could ask or imagine. He's just not done working. Lord, we ask as we prepare our hearts to receive these elements, Holy Spirit, that you would come and breathe on them and that you would also breathe on our hearts that the things that are knotted up that are tight, that are clenched, would you loosen them in your gentleness and in your compassion? We ask it today. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Let us receive the body of Christ. And then he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and me. Amen. Thanks be to God for these gifts. Now let us respond today with a song of thanksgiving. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Now let me send you out into the world with a blessing. It has been good for us to be gathered as the people of God, the body of Christ. But now go full of the Spirit and the peace of Christ, who is all sufficient for your every need and for the needs of the world that you will come in contact with. Go in that knowledge. We'll see you next week.